Grace to you and peace, faith family. If you will turn with me to Colossians chapter 3. We will begin in verse 12 and read through verse 14. Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. This is the word of the Lord. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let us pray. Gracious God and King, we come before you this morning asking for your spirit to meet us here. God, if there is one in here this place that does not know you as their Lord and Savior, that they would come to know you before it's eternally too late. And that, Father, for those of us who are yours, who would consider ourselves chosen of God, May we understand what it means to be your children, to be your people. To declare you as our king is to demonstrate your kingdom, and to demonstrate your kingdom is to declare you as king. So I pray, Father, that you would um, continue to work in the hearts of your people this morning, uh, sanctification. Maybe even by your grace and mercy this morning that someone would come to know what it means to be justified and forgiven. And that, God, we would be faithful to this word. Be with your servant this morning. May he preach your word in a way in which glorifies you and edifies the church. For it's in Christ's name and for his sake we pray. Amen. I don't know how many of you are familiar with the idea of a tapestry. Anybody all familiar with what a tapestry is? You know, I was as I was preparing this sermon series, I began to do a lot of Uh, research on this idea of a tapestry and I've become quite fascinated by it actually and for those of you don't know it's a type of textile art Uh, traditionally it's woven by hand on what's called a loom and this tapestry is used and it was it was used in the medieval period Uh, the, the what kind of spurred me to this is Shay and I got into this Netflix show and I was looking at and it was a medieval show and on their walls was tapestries it was like their wallpaper was made out of rugs, right? And I was looking at it, and it was so beautiful, and I was like, man, what is this? And I started to study medieval art, and in the medieval art, I came across tapestry, and it all kind of tied to this sermon series as I was going through it. So the medieval period used it as as a textile type of wallpaper. It's so old, tapestry is so old, that there was a robe that was found, actually found in 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 the inside of King Tut's tomb. So it's a very old type of, of, of textile art. Now, I don't want to get real technical here because I'm not trying to start a tapestry business or a tapestry ministry, but it, it quite uh, fascinated me because it kind of goes with what I'm going to be talking about this morning. But in the weaving of the thread, there are two basic components. And for those of you who know this, just bear with me. For those of you who don't, uh, let, me, let me share with you what I have learned over the past few months about tapestry. Two basic components. You have a weft and a warp. 
a weft and a warp. Now, for those of you who don't know what it means, you're like me. I'm like, what's a weft and what's a warp? So the warp are the threads that are vertically, that are vertical, and they are held stationary in tension. So you got these vertical threads on a loom. They're held, and that's called the warp. Am I right? For those of you who are, that's right, right? Yeah, that's the warp, right? If it's not, it is now. So I just changed the whole thing. So that's the way it works, okay? So the warp are the threads that are vertically held stationary in tension. The weft, also known as the wolf, you can call it the wolf or the weft, they are drawn under and over the warp in order to make this beautiful tapestry. Does that make sense to everybody? All right. But a tapestry is unique in that it is a, it is a weft-faced weave where all the warp threads are hidden in the completed work. So here's the deal. When you look at a tapestry, all of the vertical threads, the ones that are in tension, that you actually are weaving in and out, all the vertical threads are hidden. You can't see it when you look at the picture. All you see are the other threads that are woven in and through. I found that to be quite fascinating. In other woven textiles that are not tapestries, both the warp and the weft are seen. But in the tapestry, the weaving of the weft is discontinuous, and that is how the artisans form the designs that you see as being so intrinsically seeming to be put together in beauty. And that, that intrigued me. So what I'm trying to get at this, I'm trying to get this, all through the warp, although the warp is not seen, through the entire uh, tapestry, the warp are the threads that bind the entire piece together. This morning, what we're going to begin is we're going to begin to start a series that we have entitled Threads. Threads. It's a three-week series. Obviously, if it's only a three-week series, I'm not going to be giving you a comprehensive view of all the, all the warps that are needed for a family. Not only a unit, a unit of a family, a nuclear family, husbands and wives, which is going to be the primary element that I'll be emphasizing, but us as a faith family. How do we operate as a community of faith, and how do we operate this? And there are threads that are going to be that have to be tight in order for us to weave our the way we want to display it to the world, the way we want our tapestry to be seen. Because when you start messing with these things, when you start messing with the warp of our homes, the threads that are often unseen but are fundamental for the tapestry to be displayed in the world, and what we don't realize is that when we tear the tapestry, it is often due in large part to the underlying warps not holding together. You see, it's not something that outside world can see because what the outside world sees is the weft. It's the warp that's being torn and the warp's being torn because that's the thing that's holding it together and then when everything unravels, what do people want to pay attention to? They want to pay attention to the wefts. They want to pay attention to what you've seen. When what you find and what you discover is that things were being torn down long before this out external reality was ever ripped apart. Before the tapestry was ever destroyed, there was something happening among the threads. So although I will, uh, I will admit to you and confess that this will not give you all the warps and the wefts of the weaving of the tapestry of our home, I do believe it will provide some essential threads 
to weave a home and to weave a church that is able to display God's kingdom to the world around us. And that is why you've heard me uh, that you hear this and you see this entire sermon series entitled Threads. Because what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to get our warps and our wefts so that we can beautifully display the kingdom of God in the tapestry of our homes and in the tapestry of our community. And the first thread that we are going to look at here from the book of Colossians that will bind our home and our church together, that will bind, if you will allow me to use this, the family together, is this thread, forgiving the past. You will notice that as we go through this, there's going to be a past element, next week will be a present element, and the week after that will be a future element. But today I want to talk about this. I want to talk about this, forgiving the past. And this is revealed in life, is it not? I think I have all of your attention. As I look on your faces, I'm aware that many of you, many of your stories are full of pains, full of hurts, which have often come from those that care about us the most. Families that haven't, that have pasts, hurts. It could be as tragic as the angry, rebellious young girl who grew up without a father. Or maybe it's different. Maybe it's not the angry, rebellious young girl. Maybe it's the quiet young boy whose mother abandoned him. Or maybe it's as simple as the husband who can't forgive his wife for the argument last Friday. Or the wife who can't forgive the husband for his lack of concern or common sense or what she deems to be common sense. Or maybe it's a preacher standing before you who once upon a time found out that, uh, that had to live a life where his father was an alcoholic and desired the bottom of a beer can before he ever desired to spend time with his son. Or what about a stepdad who beat his mom ruthlessly in front of him? I don't stand before you here as somebody who's read a book on forgiveness and now I want to kind of tell you about it. I've had to forgive hard things. And by the way, I have been the angry young boy. I have been the quiet young boy. I've never been the wife, but I have been the husband. I've been the husband who needed forgiveness from his wife for being a lack of concern or showing having no common sense. I think it's fair to say I've been the husband who has often forgiven his wife as well. What I'm trying to say and what I'm trying to get at to you guys, this is not something, this, this sermon series, the whole series really, but, but this particular sermon is not one in which I have I've read a book somewhere and I said, hey, this is, this is some good stuff. I really want to share it with you. But this is something that I've lived out. I wonder how many of us in this room have read this verse. The one that says, you know, that you are bearing with one another, forgiving each other, whoever's a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. I wonder how many of us in the church have read this, and yet our flesh reveals our tendency not towards forgiveness, but for, towards revenge. What, how many, if, if you were to sit down with me and somebody did you wrong, how many of, your, how many of you are with me? And some of you are not. Some of you have been sanctified in a way that I haven't. But oftentimes, my first reaction is not, hey, how can I forgive this person? But it's often, how can I get back? 
argument between my wife and I is often not, hey, how can I keep this bond in unity? I think I've gotten better at it over the years. But it often is an argument, a conversation when we're disagreeing with something is, how can I win? I'm right, you're wrong, so how can I win? How many of you in this room, when I even speak about forgiveness, your tendency is to go towards revenge? How many of you would desire rather to be right than to desire to forgive? For those of you in marriage, what did you think marriage was going to be like anyway? Did you actually think marriage was going to be one in which you didn't, it, forgiveness was unnecessary? In my counseling, I often counsel young couples on the wedding day that when you stand before this group of people and before God, more importantly, and before your friends and your family and you vow to love one another, I want you to know that you're not vowing to love one another now. That's not a vow. That's a current reality. I hope you're getting married. I hope you love one another at the moment you get married, right? No, no, listen to me, ladies and gentlemen. What do we say? You are not vowing the love now, although we expect you to love. That's expected on your wedding day. It's a vow to love one another when it's tested in the presence of what? For better or for worse? In sickness and in health. Till what? Till death do us part. It's not a vow for a present love, although we want that. It's a vow for a future love in, in light of, not in spite of all the difficulties that may come. In light of whatever excuse that you are in here right now, and I know there is times, because I've sat in the chair, I've heard pastors preach, and I've told, man, I can't tell you when that 16-year-old boy was sitting with a bunch of Christians, and these Christians were trying to, quote-unquote, convert me, right, and they were trying to do all these things. I can't tell you when we were at that table, and they were sitting there trying to tell me about Jesus and His forgiveness. I can't tell you about the anger that came upon my heart when I said, yeah, why would your Jesus allow me to go through so much pain? Where was your Jesus when my mom was crying in the bathroom, screaming for help, and the, the man that was beating her was telling her, hey, if you call, telling me if you call the law, I'll kill her. And my wife was, and my, and my, sorry, my mom was sitting there screaming, hey, if you don't call the law, he's going to kill me. What do you do at 11 years old? I've been there, and I see it. I know it. I shouldn't say I see it, but I have experienced it. That's the only thing I can say. So I wonder, and I, I, I do ponder, if there's somebody in here, when I begin to talk about forgiving, and when I begin to mention this idea of forgiveness, I wonder how many of you are coming up with excuses. I would forgive, but. I would forgive, but. You're already giving yourself an excuse. You're already giving yourself an out. You're already giving yourself an excuse for reasons not to forgive. Oh, but let me testify to you. Your inability to forgive something in the past, listen to me, I speak from experience. It will be a chain that holds you to a past hurt. A chain that holds you to a past hurt. And it will never be a thread that can bind the tapestry of your family together. It will never be able to bind. It will never be a thread that's going to be able to be solid because it's always going to be a chain that, hurt, that binds you to that hurt. So I wonder if I'm in here this morning with a bunch of people who can identify that it's been revealed in your life. It's been revealed in your life? You find your need of forgiveness? You find your need of needing to forgive? Needing to be forgiven? Oh, God knows. 
God knows I stand before you not on a pulpit as a means of me coming in any sort of superiority, but just so you can see and hear me better because I wish I would be down on my knees before you saying I'm, I, am, I am but a worm. I am but the chief of all sinners. So it's revealed in our life, and I think I come before you, and I don't think that's hard, but it's also remembered in redemption. The threat of forgiveness is remembered in your own redemption. Now I'm talking to those in particularly in here who are believers. You see, I do believe the reason, and I don't think this is harsh because I remember being an unbeliever. I remember those days in which I sat in the, in the seat and I wasn't able to forgive and I came up with the reasons or excuses for my lack of forgiveness and I never had a tie. I never had something that bound my forgiveness. I never had a reason to forgive because my reasons for forgiving were always bound to the reaction that I would have upon somebody else's reaction. My forgiveness was always bound to what somebody else did. It was never bound to anything else. So I was always looking for man, man, humanity, to give me a reason to forgive them. But once I was saved, once I had been redeemed, things changed. Many, many of the self-righteous will find themselves, more often than not, weighing in on this issue from the side of a victim. In other words, how are you going to tell me to forgive? Why should I forgive him? Why should I forgive her? Hardly ever do you find the self-righteous focusing on the issue from when they are the perpetrator. How many of you, when you do wrong, desire mercy, but when others do wrong, you desire justice? You see, ladies and gentlemen, in a Christian home, in a Christian marriage, in a Christian family, in a Christian church. This is the core to our understanding of our identity that leads us. Our identity leads us to our activity in the act of forgiveness. Paul writes, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Ladies and gentlemen of the church, listen. He who sets the model for forgiveness for a Christian home is Christ it's not your wife, it's not your husband, it wasn't your father, it wasn't your mother, it's not your pastor, it's not your deacon, it's not any of that. Listen to me, because this is what we do. Well, that's not the way my dad did it, that's not the way, well, my wife, my husband, and then we start looking at others. The example for us is Jesus. So if you're wondering how you should forgive, you don't look at your pastor and say, oh, he forgave his stepdad, which I'm going to go to in a minute, but you look at Jesus and say, oh, he forgave me challenging yes and the model of forgiveness Christ set before us is the challenge that we are made into his image and his likeness now this of course assumes we as believers understand that we are all in need of forgiveness do you do you understand that you are in need of forgiveness before God in the creed, we often repeat, we believe in the forgiveness of sins. Do you? Or do you believe in the forgiveness of sins for you? You see, when we read that, we often make it very pro. I, we believe in the forgiveness of sins for us as long as we ain't got to forgive sins. <laughs> as long as we ain't got to forgive people. Beloved, understanding our own forgiveness provides us what we need when we too are commanded to forgive. Sinners we were born, and sinners we have been. 
In a few moments, we're going uh, to set aside a parent commissioning and a grandparent commissioning. Well, we'll have little babies sitting up here. And we're going to commission the parents and the grandparents who are covenant members of our church to raise these children or to help their parents, if they're grandparents, to help raise these children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. It's a great time of celebration, a great time of the church being the church. But let me tell you something about these kids, these little, these little buckets of sin. You ain't going to, let me tell you something, parents. I'm going to go ahead and tell you this. You ain't going to have to teach them to do wrong. And all God's people said, amen. You ain't going to teach them to do nothing wrong. I raised three of them. Trust me, there wasn't a day that I woke up that I was going, you know what, I think I'm going to teach old Chase how to do something wrong today. I think I'm going to just, nope, came straight from the womb, just, just, ah, wrong, just wanting something. You ain't got to teach no kid to do wrong. Sinners we were born and sinners we have been. There is no devil and no companion that will lead us to wickedness like our own hearts. There is no devil and no companion that will lead us to wickedness like our own hearts. Why do I say that? There was an old time comedian, he used to say, well, the devil made me do it. You don't need the devil to make you do it. You don't need a friend to make you do it. You can do it all on your own. You have wickedness inside of you. There is not a commandment in all of the Ten Commandments which does not condemn us. Each of us stand before God is of our own merit. We're unable to be acquitted. We must either, therefore, because God is holy and because God is just, we must either be forgiven or we must perish. You see, ladies and gentlemen, I hope you hear my heart. This removes prideful and arrogant thoughts about ourselves. Sin is the burden of our soul in need of removal. It's a defilement in need of cleansing. It's a debt in need of payment. It's a flood that has created valleys that is in need of a bridge. Who in this room is able to say anything in their guilt and forgiveness before God other than this? I obtained mercy. Colossians 1.14, Paul wrote, In Him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. In who? In Christ. The gospel is in Christ. God provided redemption to us through the blood of His Son. He removes our burdens, He cleanses our defilement, He pays our debt, and He is the only one who can build the bridge that reconciles us back to a relationship with God the Father. So what, are, what, what should a people do who have been forgiven of their sins? That while they were yet sinners, Christ died for them. That while they were in the depth of their wickedness, Jesus died and redeemed them. What ought to a redeemed people do? What ought to a forgiven people do? What is the natural reaction for those who have received such forgiveness? Remember what Paul said in Ephesians 5? He said to walk in love as Christ has loved us. We are to walk in the way in which Christ has walked for us. So if Jesus forgives us, we ought to what? Forgive what? Others. If he has redeemed us, we ought to help redeem what? Others. What he does to us, he wants to do through us. Now listen, for those of you who are lost in here, I want to 
I want to paint a perfectly clear picture just to make sure that y'all don't get mistaken what I'm saying. It is undeniable that in this room we will confess that we are falling short of this. But this is our aim. And we ought to never remove that as our aim. And I do want to caution you. Because sometimes what we do is we want to weigh the Christ by those who call themselves Christians. We want to look at the Christ because of the vast enormous of people who call themselves Christians and live in unforgiveness. I want to tell you, that's not the Christ, the Christian of the Bible. The Christian of the Bible ought to see the fact that Christ has forgiven them and therefore they ought to forgive. I want to put it very simply. Not everybody who wears a LeBron jersey is LeBron. And not everybody who wears an Atlanta Braves jersey plays for the Atlanta Braves. You can put a jersey on and not play on the team. Holler. Yep. So it is an undeniable truth in this room that we profess to falling short, but that is our aim. And we do not dare, church, to lower the mark to fit ourselves. That is what I have seen over and over and over again. Jesus is our aim. He's our high calling. He's the one that we're ought to replicate. I'm having struggle, forg- struggle forgiving. Well, you know I ain't Jesus. So, hmm. You never lower the mark to fit yourself. We come to God and we ask that He would provide the continued growth and grace so that we would come to live in His image. And each time we face an offense, it will lead us to the reality of the member, to the memory of how God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven us. Let me say it again. Each time you face an offense, it, it ought to lead us to the reality of the memory of how God, for Christ's sake, forgave us. One writer put it like this. How come we have been forgiven of a pound and we cannot forgive a pence? A spiteful, quarrelsome Christian is a scandal to the Savior. Indeed. Indeed. So we remember our own forgiveness and redemption. And we, uh, we see, we, it's been revealed in our life, it's remembered in redemption, and, la- and next I want to show you that it's repeated in offense. Forgiveness is repeated in offense. All roads that lead to the bridge of forgiveness started in the valley of offense. Yes? All roads that lead to the bridge of forgiveness started in the valley of offense. It could have been a word, a look, a gesture, an act, Do you not find it amazing that we always seem to find a way to hurt one another? You would think by now, if we were more civilized people, that we would have found a way, if it were in us, not to hurt one another like we do. But yet the 20th century was the most bloodiest century in the history of humanity. I don't have to go corporately. We can do it in our homes. We find ways, whether intentionally or unintentionally, of repeatedly causing offense. We are descendants of Adam, are we not? And as long as we live in this Genesis 3 world, we're going to find ourselves in this paradigm. An offense that has caused pain 
Now, what I'm about to do is I want to I want to help you. I want to help you get through it because one of my heart's goals in my in my life is to influence people so that they live lives of excellence. And I want you to be able to see Jesus and to live this through. So, anytime there's an offense in your life, there's a pain. As a physical injury, when you're physically injured, there's a pain in your body. Sometimes it's immediate. It's immediately a pain, like when you touch an oven or a stove. Sometimes it's not that. It's like an irritant, like when you pull a muscle or you get a splinter. Many attempts of us will attempt, instead of trying to fix it, we suppress the truth. We suppress the hurt, and we make it like a splinter in the finger, yes? When we feel hurt in our heart, when we feel pain in our emotions, it's like a sounding an alarm. It's like the nerve endings on the end of your finger. It's like the nerve endings on the end of your hand when you touch a fire. What is the original pain meant to do? It's meant to keep you from a, dimp- a deeper, more difficult pain. At times, the pain is traumatic. At times, the pain is traumatic. At other times, it's like being thrown into all at once, right? Like being thrown into the fire. But I'm trying to get you to understand where there is emotional hurt, where there is the need for forgiveness which comes through the emotional hurt, pain will serve as a warning for us to stop and find resolution. Unresolved pain turns into what? Anger. And what does anger turn into? Anger often turns into conflict. And when there is conflict, you find the inability at times to find a peaceful resolution. You see, anger is taboo among us Christians. For those of you who aren't members of the church, it's taboo among us. We don't walk around, well, we try not to walk around being angry. Right? It's taboo among some of us. Well, some of us is not that taboo because they always angry. That's just their resting face is what we would call them in business. They just mad. They always mad. They call themselves Christians, they just always mad. I would I would point back to my last point. Right? But anger is tab- taboo among Christians. We ought we, we look at anger and we, we see that and we don't try to walk around in anger. That's something that we, we typically don't try to do in the church. In the church. In the gathering of the people. But boy, go into their homes. Walk behind their closed doors. Because there's something about our homes that we believe provides us the freedom to just explode. There's something about being hidden behind closed doors that think that we can now talk to our wives and our children that way. You wouldn't do it in public like that. But you sure enough will do it in your home. I want you to remember this, hurt people hurt people. By the way, the scripture does not say not to be angry. The scripture tells us, it gives us direction in the midst of anger. Paul said, in your anger do not sin. In the handling of anger, sin will manifest itself. Anger is often disguised, but know this, where there is an offense, there is pain. And where there is unresolved pain, there will be anger. 
And anger can be displaced, by the way, ladies and gentlemen. Some of you are saying, what does that mean? Shay and I are getting in an argument. I'm angry at her. We're having this angry conversation. So I walk out. Chase asks me, hey, Dad, do you want something to drink? And I get angry at Chase for asking me if I want something to drink. My anger was displaced. I wasn't angry at Chase. I was angry at Shay because I can't control the pain. And because I can't control the pain at hurt, now my son is going to experience the anger. Why did he experience the anger? Because my anger is displaced. Holler. Anybody ever seen it? Anybody ever done it? Or is it just me? Am I the only one in here who gets, who gets a little wicked? Anger can be leftovers. When it comes from a place, in other words, your husband or your wife, they woke up on Saturday morning, they're not, they haven't done anything that morning, and because you're angry with what they did on Friday afternoon, you're going to go ahead and be mad at them for what they did. And listen to me, here's the part about habits, and I'm not going to get into a big, deep discussion here about habits, but when you take that anger and that pain and you hold it down, you forget, ah, I've been married a minute, holler, I've been married a minute. You ever been here where two or three weeks pass and you're still angry at them and you don't even know why you're angry at them? Heck, I don't have a good memory, so it only takes me about 30, 40 minutes. Why are we angry at each other? I don't know. Me neither, but I'm going to stay angry at you. Y'all hear me? Anger can be displaced. Anger can be left over. But for those of us who are more reactive... A hurt that is unresolved will find themselves going straight into anger at future offenses. Why? Because we're already at a nine. I use this in marital counseling all the time. If our home is already at a nine, it doesn't take much to get us to a ten, does it? And if you create a home where anger is displaced and the, uh, our anger is just manifested all over and we don't ever resolve anger, every time you don't resolve it, you're just, we- you're just raising the water. You're raising the temperature. And you get that temperature high enough and then it only takes one little word, one little look, and everything's blown up. Next thing you know, you're in a full-fledged fight. Anybody toes hurting yet? So, ladies and gentlemen, the options are these. Either we ignore the offense and we just allow the anger to fester, or we have to act on the original offense by providing forgiveness. That's your two options. A family that misses the thread of forgiveness will find itself reliving the cycles of hurt, anger, and offense. Hurt, anger, and offense. Hurt, anger, and offense. And before you know it, you're going to be sitting on my couch saying, I feel like we're stuck in this rut. We can't get out. Now watch what happens. I say, you know what a rut is? It's a grave with both ends kicked out. That's all a rut is. Guess how you're going to get out? You're going to have to forgive. Oh, no, no, no. Mm-mm. It's not my problem, it's his problem. Y'all have heard me say this before in marital counseling. I sit down with a couple, the very first question I answer is, okay, what's the problem with our marriage? Him, her, I'm done. It's literally what I tell them. They go, she goes him, he goes her, and I go, okay, I'm done. As long as both of you see each other as the problem, we're never going to get to resolution. I need both of you to see yourself as the problem, and then we can get to resolution. Because I don't know, I don't know if you know this, wife, wife, I don't know if you know this, you can't fix him. Oh, oh, and by the way, husband, I don't know if you know this, but you can't fix her. 
can't. All I know is what's going on in this old boy's heart. And trust me, once you figure this part out, you will find out quick, very quickly. There's a lot of work to be done here. I ain't even got to work. I got enough here. Right? I can't tell you how many times I've told uh, men and women in marital counseling, I've said this. Hey, do me a favor. Before you ever look at the window, you need to look in the mirror. Handle the reflection in the mirror before you ever handle the reflection. Uh, look out the window and see the person out there. What is required to bring a family back together when they're pushed apart? Did you know that the root word for forgiveness is to send away or dismiss? It is actively choosing to give up our hurt to the offense and our anger despite the injustice. Now, it doesn't mean it wasn't offensive. Do not hear me say that. It doesn't mean it didn't hurt. When I forgave my stepdad for all that he did, it didn't, I wasn't validating that it was just in what he did. I wasn't saying that he didn't offend me. I wasn't saying that he didn't hurt me. All offenses hurt. But it is in spite of the hurt that we seek to release the pain of those who have offended. You see, the thread of forgiveness equips a family to communicate on such a deep level of acceptance for one another that you can recover from a pain that we inflict and work through offenses. You see, ladies and gentlemen, forgiveness is powerful because every time we forgive, we display God's amazing grace and mercy. That's why when I talk to my atheist friends, I often tell them, you don't understand, but you glorify God without wanting to glorify God. How? Have you ever forgiven? Yes. Boom. You just glorified God. Now, you didn't mean to, but you did. Forgiveness is powerful because every time is a display of God's grace, unmerited favor that he has given us. And through the thread of forgiveness, we are able to remove transgressions. We're able to rescue one another from the darkness. We're able to provide redemption and reconciliation in our homes and our marriage. Forgiveness allows us to stand without blemish before one another. It clears us of accusations and it cleanses us from future wrongs. Listen to what Paul said. I want to turn to this very quickly. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Verses 5 through 11. Listen to what he says. But if any has called sorrow, he has called sorrow not to me, but in some degree in order, to, in order not to say much to all of you. Sufficient for such a one is the punishment which was inflicted by the majority. So that on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Wherefore, I urge you to reaffirm, reaffirm your love for him. For to this end also I write, so that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. Ready? But whom, but one whom you forgive anything, I forgive you also. For indeed what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ. So that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we are ignorant of his schemes. So that, ladies and gentlemen, we forgive. Think about this in your home. We forgive so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan. Ladies and gentlemen, let me tell you something. We are at war with an enemy. That's why we are to provide, we, we are provided an armor. 
And let me tell you one of the things that I want to let you guys know. Forgiveness is like poison in the schemes of Satan. It is destruction to his plot. You want to injure Satan in your home? Be forgiving. Because Satan's like, I can't do nothing. I try to make them mad at each other, try to get them offended at each other, and they just forgive one another. They like Jesus. They're getting on my nerves. They like Jesus. Jesus Christ, what are you doing? That's what I want him to say. I want, I, want, I want Satan to look at me and go, Jesus, what are you doing to these people? They're forgiving each other. <laughs> Get you some. Get you some. So let me talk about uh, this idea. In, ver- in uh, point number four, it has repeated in myth. That's my mistake. It should have said ridiculed in myth. Ridicule and myth. What I mean by that is oftentimes, y'all, when I talk about forgiveness, people bring up myth. The problem is we have embraced so much folk theology and forgiveness that we're unable to deal with it well. So I want to very quickly give you five myths in relationship to forgiveness. Five myths that I've heard from the church in relationship to forgiveness because I want you to eliminate them so that you don't use them in order not to forgive. Myth number one, when I forgive, I must forget. It's not possible. It's never been given to us. That's not the Bible. I would say that's maybe a part of the purpose why Jesus said we have to forgive 70 times 7. Why? Because every time I remember, I've got to remember to forgive again. Every time I remember the offense of my stepdad, I had to remember to forgive him again because the hurt was renewed, the pain was renewed, the anger was removed. Some of you husbands need to learn to forgive your wives again and again and again. Some of you wives need to learn to forgive your husbands again and again and again. Some of you children need to learn to forgive your parents. Some of you parents need to learn to forgive your kids again and again and again because with each hurt, with each manifestation of pain, comes the the next need of forgiveness. And you don't forget but I refuse to allow it to be a chain to hold me to my past. Because here's the deal. You've heard me say this. I'm going to be very quick. It was not my fault, but it is my responsibility. The pain in your past may not have been your fault, but it is dang sure your responsibility. I don't know if I can say dang sure. It's surely your responsibility. I'm a grown man. And if my stepdad thinks for a moment or thought for a moment that he was going to control the rest of my life with his bitterness, his anger, his inability to do what he needed to do as a man, if you think that I'm going to allow his fault to become my future, you got another thing coming because i got a man by the name of Jesus who has redeemed me and saved me from my sin. And because of that, now I can live in the newness of life that that man would never be able to provide for me. I ain't going to give you that chain long enough, brother. I ain't going to let you have that chain long enough. No, I've been freed. I've been rescued. And who the sun sets free <laughs> is free indeed isn't he number one when I forgive I must forget hogwash throw it out number two it is impossible for me to forgive y'all there is never a situation where forgiveness is impossible there are only individuals who find it impossible to forgive forgiveness by God's grace and God's power is always possible how do you know that Stand in the mirror and be amazed. I told you it always starts in the mirror. Because if anybody's forgiveness was impossible, it was the man who was in the mirror this morning that I reflected upon. 
Number one, when I forgive, I must forget. That's not biblical. Number two, it's impossible for me to forgive. That's absolutely not biblical. Number three, I don't feel like forgiving, so my forgiveness isn't genuine. I don't feel like forgiving, so my forgiveness isn't genuine. This is a mistake of understanding. Forgiveness is not an emotional decision. Forgiveness is a decision of the will. Because I want to warn you, if you're waiting to feel like it, you are only going to feed the hurt and the anger. Forgiveness is not an emotional decision. You're not waiting to feel it. You do it. If you can't say amen, say ouch. Number four, I can't forgive until they ask. Waiting for the offender to ask for forgiveness, you're going to find yourself in a long relational holding pattern. If you're waiting for a sinner who has already hurt you to come and ask you for forgiveness, then you are binding your ability to forgive to their actions, which makes you by definition a victim. Because you can't do it until they ask. And I want to say this, all things in holding patterns eventually run out of gas. All things in holding patterns eventually run out of gas. Number five, and this is the last one. I can't forgive because then I must pretend like nothing happened. I can't forgive because then I must pretend like nothing happened. Do you think Jesus forgave us and then he pretends like nothing happened? Or do you think Jesus forgives us and then he sees the hands in his hands, the holes in his hands, and says, oh, no, no, I remember exactly what happened. Do, do, see, this is what we think. We think God forgives us and then he forgets because of misinterpretation of what the Scripture says. The Bible, the word that used for God forgetting our sins, casting it as far as the east is from the west, is the word that we get for remember. In other words, to forget is not to bring up to the present. It's to cast away. It's not to, if God can forget something, it would by definition make him not all-knowing. And God is all-knowing. We know that clearly. So in other words, when God forgives us of our sin, it's not that he looks at us and he doesn't know what we did. That would cease to make him God. No, he knows exactly what we did. And praise be to God through Christ, he knows exactly what he did. You see, forgiveness doesn't pretend that nothing happened or that offenses don't hurt. Forgiveness acknowledges that what really happened and forgiveness acknowledges that it really hurt, but it chooses to let the offense be removed. Forgiveness says, I know what you did, it hurt, And now I can't allow it to control me anymore. You see, ladies and gentlemen, this is what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is this. I will not seek vengeance on you. I will give that to my God and allow him to do what is right, holy, and just. And if God, by his power, seeks to to provide you for eternal forgiveness, if he wants to redeem you and restore you, then to God be the glory. If he wants to send you to a burning hell because you deserve it, then to God be the glory. But I am no longer going to be your judge and your jury. I give that to God. He now will take care of you. 
He now will take care of you. If you continue to walk down, this is the way I would have told my stepdad. Uh, we, were, we were in a, uh, uh, um, uh, a food uh, buffet. We are in a food buffet, somewhere between the potatoes, the meat and potatoes, and the salad bar. And I forgave him of everything he ever did to me. And I asked him to follow Christ with the rest of his life. He picks up his current wife, leaves, and to God as a witness, to God as my witness, this past Sunday, last Sunday, we went to eat at Zaxby's, where I met my, my cousin, his, his sister's daughter. And she said, did you hear what happened to your, step, your ex-stepdad? I said, no. He was murdered two years ago. As God is my witness, I just found out a week ago that he was murdered two, two, two years ago. What would it have been like if I would have held on to all that and I'm still holding on to it? What would it have been like for me, the change that would have bind me to all that hurt and that pain if I wouldn't have forgiven him? I would be without the capacity to do it at this point. This thread, lastly, restored in obedience. Restored in obedience. This thread changes the tapestry of family. Listen to me, listen to me, please. I know some of you are here like, man, this guy is long-winded. I know, I know. He said the same thing 30 times. It's, and I know, I know, because I need to hear it 30 times. Thank you for being gracious. Thank you for being merciful. But listen, this thread will change the tapestry of your entire family. I come from a family that cannot forgive. I come from a family that holds things in bitterness for every day everything it will change your family but it doesn't mean it's going to be easy you see many of us in this room we can appreciate the truth the beauty and the goodness of forgiveness and some of you would even come to me and go I desire it so I desire our family to be a family of forgiveness so what stops it from happening you want to know what stops it from happening this is what I've learned this is just my experience this is my experience. It may not be yours, but it's mine. Here's what stops most people from forgiving. It's the cost. It's the cost. Why? Because forgiveness requires the perpetrator to receive a pardon at the expense of the one who was hurt. My stepdad received a pardon, and I didn't do it. It wasn't my fault. But yet he received the pardon and I still held on to the hurt. That's the reason that I find so many people not forgiving. But what you don't look at are the benefits. What you're not looking at is the other side. You're worried about how much it's going to cost you. But I'm going to tell you this. It will cost you some, but I want to tell you the freedom that it gives you on the other side is much more beautiful than the cost it costs you. Forgiveness allows us to cast off the bondage of any of carrying any offense that only God himself can bear. It's a supernatural power of forgiveness. And through it, we are able to begin again. So the question is how? How do we find restoration and, and obedience? Here are four steps that I give to families. I want to offer your family four steps to obedience, to forgiveness. Step number one, you need to prepare yourself. 
You need to prepare yourself. And by the way, when I say prepare yourself, prepare yourself before the offense and after the offense. You may be going, how do I know I'm going to be offended? Because I live. How do you prepare yourself before an offense? You come to know who Christ is. You come to know who you are in Christ. You prepare your heart so that when somebody is going to offend you, that the water bottle is so full of love and forgiveness that that's what bops out. The the water that bops out, the the thing that bops out when you get hit, when you get bumped into is going to be forgiveness. Oh, I'm going to prepare for forgiveness because that's what I've been putting in me. That's how you prepare before. How do you prepare after? You calm yourself. You calm yourself. Humbly humble yourself and pray. Genuinely look for the causes of the conflict, both external and internal. Own your part first and embrace the truth that the relationship is more than the conflict. Let me say that because that has been so important to my wife and I. Own your part first and embrace the truth that our relationship is more important than the conflict. Go to Christ in your pain and allow the gospel to penetrate your heart. That's first. Prepare yourself. Second, communicate your feelings. Think ahead of what you're going to say. Commit to listening to the other person for the purpose of understanding. That phrase is so uh, weighty. Commit yourself to listening for the purpose of understanding. It's so weighty. Not for the purpose of replying. Not for the purpose of responding. But for the purpose of understanding. Recognize the differences in communication. Some people like to talk a lot. Some people don't like to talk a lot. There are rhythms in humanity that God has given us. One of the rhythms that I've learned When men get upset and angry, they get hysterical. They get mad. That's why they start throwing things and punching things. We get hysterical. Women, they get historical. They tend to go back and remember the last two weeks of things that you're like, I didn't even know, yo. You've got to recognize the differences in communication. Often men are bottom line driven, and often women want to tell you a story. Speak from your own pain and not the actions or the accusations of others. In other words, if my wife and I got into an argument, I'm going to speak from my own pain. This hurts me. My heart feels bad. It's not the action that she did. It's the pain that I'm feeling. And if I can speak to that and communicate that, you'll find it better. Use I statements and avoid generalizations. When you're in a disagreement with somebody and you're seeking forgiveness in your home, use I statements. I believe, I feel, I, and avoid generalizations. What are they? Mm, I'm going to preach. I'm preaching now. I know. I know I'm preaching. Uh, Words like always. You always. You never. Mm. Those usually don't go well. Just saying. Man, listen to me. Why? 
Because generalizations, when you say you always, you never, it distorts the issue, it compounds the situation, and it brings up the always and the nevers. Watch, I could do something wrong. Donnie, uh, you didn't uh, put your shoes up. Okay, we'll just use that. Donnie, you didn't put your shoes up. Donnie, you never put your shoes up. Oh, yes, I did. I put my shoes up last Saturday. Right? Now what did the argument become about? I never put my shoes up. Where was the argument? I didn't put my shoes up at that moment, and I get into the always and the nevers, and the next thing you know, we're at each other's throat. Preach. Okay, can't say amen, say out. Third, third, confront the conflict for the purpose of restoration. And let me tell you one thing that my wife and I have learned. The greater, the deeper the conflict. Now listen. If y'all are getting into bitter fights about shoes being left in the hallway, y'all probably have a deeper problem. I'm telling you that. I'm being honest with you. I'm trying to love you. But if it's a true issue that is large, that you feel like is going to continue in conflict, here's what I would recommend. And watch what happens. Pray. Men, grab your wife's hands. Sit before her and pray to the God, your Redeemer, Christ, together and watch what happens. It's hard to be bitter when you're praying to the God who has redeemed and saved you and forgave you. It's hard to do that when you have been forgiven. Yep. 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 I'm preaching to myself. I just saw it. I saw myself say yep. It helps that in moments of conflict to pray together first. Make sure it's the right time and the right place. Remember the pro, to keep the pronouns on the I and not the you. And then fourthly, this is after. After listening, apply the elements of forgiveness, and here they are. I'm going to give you four of them. Confession, contrition, repentance, request. Give them to you again. Here's the four elements of forgiveness. Confession, contrition, repentance, request. Confession, contrition, repentance, request. Confession, I was wrong. Contrition, I am sorry. Repentance, I don't want to hurt you and I want to turn and I will turn away from this action. Lastly is request, will you forgive me? Confession, contrition, repentance, request. I know many of you in this room have experienced hurt. Maybe even from the one sitting next to you. A husband, a wife, a child, a mom, a dad. You may say, I never will be able to find it in myself to forgive. And to this I would tell you, you're absolutely right. We do lack the limitless grace that can release the offender completely and forgive the offense. This is why, ladies and gentlemen, God has not left us as a church alone. Because when we come to that place of being unable to forgive, in steps Jesus, who came to fulfill his Father's will. He did not sin. He came only to help, and yet we find him crucified. He didn't fight. He turned the other cheek. He was mocked, beaten, spit on, nailed to a cross. And on that cross, what do we hear him say? Father, forgive them. Why? Because Jesus chose the very costly way of forgiveness. I want to remind you that before you start making excuses on why you can't forgive, that you have been given a grace and a favor that you don't deserve. God lavished us with a gift of forgiveness that supplies us abundantly in what we need to forgive others. 
the power to forgive within a Christian home is a direct reflection and characteristics of who we are in Christ. And the thread of forgiveness must be woven into our homes because without it, our present family will never become what it can because we will always live out of the all-too-familiar, unresolved past hurt. I am warning you. I'm not a prophet nor the son of a prophet. But I am warning you. Unforgiveness will destroy you. But I also want to encourage you. Because forgiveness of past hurts, woven in the fabric of our home and in our churches, will bring about blessings and opportunities for present growth and change that will result in the beauty of a tapestry that this world will never understand and know. The thread of forgiving the past. As we respond to this, will you please stand? Prepare our hearts to respond to the preached message. I don't know where you are, Faith family, I don't know who you are in this room, but I know my own heart comes and I can see in, even in my life that maybe there were things in my past in which I haven't forgiven. Offenses that have happened in this past week from individuals or people that I haven't forgiven and I need to because I'm holding this bitterness, this grudge. So I'm coming to you. I don't care if it was in the past 15 minutes, it's in your past. So here's the way we respond. For those of you who are visiting with us, and we have many visitors, thank you so much for being so gracious and merciful. So kind to, to me, particularly patient. Here's the way we respond. The first way we respond is by calling you to faith because we do believe that we are sinners against God, that we have fallen from His, uh, His grace and that we are in need of salvation. So I would call you to believe in him. And for those of us in this room, for those of you in this room that would like to be saved by God's grace and his mercy, if he is reaching down to you and realizing to you right now in this moment that you are without him, that I would call for you to cry out to him and to ask him to forgive you of your sin. And you're going to follow through with that. By the way, if you've never done this, you would follow through with that in obedience by baptism. Why? Because baptism is the outward reflection of the inward reality. The reason we get baptized isn't because I made it up. It's because that's what Jesus told us to do. If you want to follow me, be baptized. If you want to confess your sin, become a believer, then be baptized. To die to yourself and to be brought back in the newness of life. And if you want to do that, get with me at the end of the service. Get with one of our elders at the end of the service. We'll schedule a time and we'll put you in the baptistry and we'll, we'll make, that make that sure. So for those of you here and here unbelievers, we want to call you to faith. We want you to let you know that forgiveness is available by God, by his amazing grace through Christ on the cross. Secondly, for those of us who are believers, now that doesn't mean you have to be a member of our faith family, okay? But if you are a believer in Christ in this place, we want to invite you to the Lord's table. We participate in the Lord's Supper every week. Why? Here's why. Because I know that when I come to this, this community, when I come to this communion, when I come to enjoy the preaching of God's word together, that I have often fallen short. And I want to remind myself that it's not in me anyway, it's in him. It's through his blood and his cross, his body, in which I have received forgiveness. So what we're going to do, just so you know, in the next few moments, I'm going to take a time of prayer, which we will all bow our heads in quiet, quiet silent reflection. We will come to our our. our um, our Lord and our Savior, we will pray to him, asking him to forgive us because we don't want to come to this table in an unworthy manner. If you are an unbeliever in this place, 
we are asking that you not to participate in the Lord's Supper. You can come up, you can walk by it if you feel uncomfortable sitting at your chair. You can come up and you can walk by it, but we are asking you not to participate in the elements. Here's why. Because it's the Lord's Supper, and if you don't call him Lord, you don't participate in his supper. And it's not us saying that you can't. You've already said that you don't want to believe in him. It's you already. We're trying to respect you, and we would ask for you to respect us in turn. That's all. So if you're here and you're visiting with us and you're not a believer and you want to come up and watch and see what we're doing, you're more than welcome. We'd ask you not to participate. If you are a believer, if you've come to accept Christ your Lord and Savior, we invite you to come and be a part of it with us. So we exit out, we come and grab the elements, and then we come back and we come back to our tables, and then we all participate together. Okay? So before we do that, let us all go to our great God and King. Let us pray and ask Him to forgive us of our sins as well.